Welcome to the Culture and Performance Podcast with me, Ben Ryan. And I'm delighted to say that this week we bring you part one of a fascinating chat with a former police officer turned author, John Sutherland. Now, I've often said in the past that the painful privilege of policing is to find yourself in all of life's hurting places. In hostage negotiation, nothing works if trust is absent. But actually, my experience of the rest of life is pretty much the same. Faster and faster and faster we go. And sometimes the thing we need to do more than anything else is slow down and stop. Because those five minutes we take now might save us five years further down the line. John joined the Met Police in 1992 after receiving the Baton of Honour presented to the outstanding student during an officer's basic training. He quickly rose through the ranks and, as it says on the back cover of his first book, Blue, experienced all that is extraordinary about a life in blue, saving lives, finding the lost, comforting the broken and helping taking the dangerous people off the streets. With the highs came the lows and in 2013, John suffered a major nervous breakdown. And we talk about that and how he's managed to wrestle control back later in the podcast. A third book and his first in the fiction category, The Siege, is on its way, straddling his second book, Crossing the Line. And before getting into the subjects like hostage negotiation, the art of listening and the reason for becoming a policeman in the first place, we spoke about why he started writing and the routines around that. My whole writing journey is, um, I still have to sort of slightly pinch myself. I, you know, if I... I talking to an elite sportsman, I ought to use a, a sporting analogy. If Jose Mourinho was the special one, and if Jurgen Klopp was the normal one, then when it comes to writing, I would have to describe myself as the accidental one. All of it has happened by kind of happy accident. I only started writing really as a consequence of my early departure from policing, which is something we may return to later on. Uh, and I started off writing nonfiction. Blue, my first book, was a memoir, Crossing the Line. The second book was a sort of broader examination of policing and what it tells us about society. Uh, and I hadn't really thought about writing fiction, except that somewhere in the back of my head, I had three characters and a basic story. that had, And they'd been there, for honestly, for about three years. And I've no idea where they came from or how they got there. But it, it just became this story that I wanted to tell. And, and the siege is really the story of these three principal characters, a terrorist, a hostage taker, his principal victim, although there are a number of others, and the hostage negotiator. And it's the story of the three of them told in real time over the course of about 10 hours. And I hope at its most basic level that it's an exciting story, that it's a, it's a page turner. But beyond that, it's, it's also a story about humanity and about hatred and where that comes from, but also about forgiveness and grace. I remember asking you once when I've been trying to put together my second book, but my first book, you know, we've had this conversation where everyone said, oh, you've written the first book. I haven't. I had it ghostwritten by Tom Fordyce, um, but it's just your name on it. But you wrote, actually wrote your books. And I'm, I'm going to give this second one a, a crack and write it myself. How do you get into your routines? Do you have a goal that you set every morning that you wanted to do in a certain number of pages? Or did you have any routine around that? 
I'm still really learning as I go. And I'm also learning, I hope, to be kind to myself. Um, because as with any routine, if, if you get too religious about it, then there's a danger that it can almost become destructive. So, I, I, you know, I have periods when I'm writing and periods when I'm not. And I try to write for, I don't know, probably between, somewhere between three and six hours a day, but with breaks in between. But actually, if on any given day I've got to the end of two hours and, and I'm exhausted or I've run out of ideas or something else is happening, I'm just learning to say to myself, that's okay. You know, if I write 50 words today or if I somehow end up writing 5,000 words today, either of those things is fine. But the thing is to keep going. When you get into that environment where you're sitting down to write, have you got anything that will remain the same? I need a fair amount of peace and quiet. I need not to be cold, funnily enough. I feel the cold, so I need to be in a, in a warm room and I need to be peaceful. And sometimes I'll play a little bit of classical music very quietly in the background. But actually, I, I like just to be peaceful and quiet with the dog asleep at my feet, with the opportunity to, to get lost in my own story. One of the topics you just mentioned there was routines and how if you put too much onus on them, they, they can potentially be destructive. But I've also seen for a lot of people comfort in having routines to allow them just to have a bit of structure during the day. And just wondering what your thoughts are on that, really. I think you're absolutely right. As with everything in life, there are, there are two sides to fall off a horse. And, you know, in this particular instance, you, you know, you could fall into the trap of having too much routine and it becoming overwhelming. But equally, you could fall off the other side of the horse uh, into having no routine at all and, and find that you end up getting nothing done. Uh, and so I suppose it is something of a balancing act and it won't be the same for everybody. So I've done some work uh, over the last three or four years with a pretty famous author who has got a pretty formidable writing regime. And he's 30 years older than me, but he writes from six until eight in the morning. Then he takes a two hour break, writes from 10 until 12, another two hour break, two till four, two hour break, six till eight. So he's got this absolute routine that he sticks to and he writes everything by hand. And that's what works for him. Uh, and I, you know, I really admire him for it. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that, that I, I'm not as a consequence of that. And he's a global best-selling author. I'm dropping all sorts of clues in here. But I'm not putting myself under any pressure to, to mirror that routine because that's not the one that would work for me. I mean, I don't have the capacity to go for that many hours. And I've also, you know, I've got a young family and a wife working full-time and there are lots of other things that I need to try and fit into life as well. So yeah, find the routine that works for you is, is, I guess, the message of the day. There's a book called Limitless by Jim Quick, and he talks about the principle of more than 25 minutes reading. Beyond that, you lose, you lose concentration. You've got to just kind of stop, take a breath, do something else for a couple of minutes if you want to actually invest, remember what you're reading. So I've, I've read a lot of books. I'm sure you've read many, many more as well. And I don't always remember that. I don't retain that information for in the, and I really want to because you feel like you've invested time in that book and to have to go back to it to remember the important bits from that book that you've gleaned is, is a bit frustrating, really. So I'm trying to get that skill 
where I can read something and remember it. It's easy if it's a story. If it's nonfiction, there's loads that, that I could tell you about. Um, but the fiction stuff, sorry, the, the nonfiction stuff is, um, yeah, I find, that, I find that difficult to retain. Yeah, I think it, it probably does depend, doesn't it, a little bit, the, the reasons why you're reading. I think if you're reading in order to educate and inform, then I, I, I can well see the, the 25 or thereabouts minutes limit. But, but if you're reading for pleasure, if you're reading to be transported somewhere else, then, you know, I can sometimes sit and read for a couple of hours at a time. And that's a profoundly wonderful thing. Do you do that as something, as one of your tools to find some time for yourself, for your own energy, to, to read intently every day? It depends a little bit where I'm at in my own writing. So if I'm right at the kind of creative point in my own storytelling, I sometimes find it slightly distracting to be in someone else's book when I need to be concentrating on my own. So I, I do a lot more reading between writing, if you see what I mean, rather than um, in the midst of writing. But I've, I, I've almost always got a book of some sort on the go. And, and you know, for, for a number of years, certainly in, in my sort of more senior professional life, I tended to read more nonfiction because I was trying to educate and improve myself. Um, these days I, I read more fiction, partly for pleasure, but partly because it's a skill I'm trying to learn for myself. Well, you, you talked about your professional life and that seems a, a, a good stop off point really in this conversation. Why did you want to become a policeman? I can tell you the exact moment that it occurred to me, literally. Um, it wasn't quite the Damascus Road, but I don't know. As I look back, I don't think it was terribly far off that. I was 16, maybe 17 years old. Um, I was standing on Hammersmith Broadway in West London, waiting to catch the bus to school. And school was never particularly my thing. I mean, I, you know, I did okay, but being cooped up in a classroom buried in books that I found fairly dry. It, it just, it, it's not where I came alive. Um, and, and so I would have been standing there on Hammersmith Broadway, not particularly relishing the day ahead. And I remember watching a copper walking down the other side of the road and he wasn't doing anything. He wasn't paying any attention to me. Knowing what I know now, and I, I'm picturing it in my head as I'm talking to you, and this is well over 35 years ago, Knowing what I know now, I suspect he was just bored and cold and tired and hungry. I, I suspect, in fact, he was on his way back into the station for his breakfast. So there was nothing going on. There was nothing thrilling, nothing of anything. And yet, as I watched him making his way along the pavement in West London, something just went click inside me. And as I say, I wouldn't want to give it the full Damascus Road treatment, but, but absolutely from that point on, I didn't really ever seriously consider doing anything else. Have you examined that now and what that click was? Uh, yes, I mean, to, to, to a significant extent. And, uh, uh, and I, I mean, it, it was a whole number of things. You know, I think, it, you know, if you ask me now and if you ask most serving police officers why they joined, that they'd actually give you a, a beautifully simple answer. They, they would say that simply they wanted to help people. You know, they, they joined because they wanted to make a difference. Um, and, and that was definitely true for me, but, but I wouldn't want to give too much credit to my 17-year-old self. I don't think I was that mature back then. I, I don't think I'd 
fully worked out my place in the world. I think as much as anything, I was attracted to a job that clearly didn't involve sitting behind a desk for hours on end that actually got me out into the wide world. And absolutely, I was drawn to the adventure of it all. And I think as well, probably at some subconscious level, at the time, my own family was falling apart. Um, my dad had left home. My parents were going through a divorce. And I suspect there was some part of me that was looking for somewhere to belong. I wanted to be part of something that mattered. And policing was undoubtedly that. Has your feeling of belonging gone away now because you've been you're in the police force for 25 years now you're rewriting and you're speaking and a rating where's the belonging sitting policing is a family extraordinarily so I, I mean it's as dysfunctional as every other family on the planet with all of its own fo foibles and failings but but absolutely it's a family and and that sense remains actually long after retirement I retired now four years ago almost to the day but I feel no less part of the family now than I did when I was actually serving. I think in my case, that's partly because I've remained quite closely involved. You know, I, I write an irregular blog about policing. Um, I sometimes do media stuff about policing and, and the speaking that you've alluded to mostly involves me actually going back into police forces and talking to officers. And that allows me to stay very much in touch. And often when I arrive at, at I mean, tomorrow I'll be at, Lancashire Police Headquarters. And often as I stand up in a room full of still serving coppers, I'll say to them, do you know what, this feels just a little bit like coming home. Uh, and it does. My next question was going to be is if you've got an example or thought on when you felt belonging the most. Well, I think, so I, I'm sure there's another sporting analogy here about, um, you know, being the member of a team um, and working towards something. And in policing terms, that applies on the very best days and it applies on the very worst days. Now, I've often said in the past that the painful privilege of policing is to find yourself in all of life's hurting places, at the scenes of crimes and car crashes and cot deaths and every other imaginable kind of catastrophe. And it's a privilege to be in those places, but it can be immensely painful too. But I think the shared experience among police officers fosters a, a remarkable kind of closeness. You know, the sense really that, that, that ultimately only those who've been there can ever fully understand. People can appreciate, they can empathize um, to a very significant degree, but unless you've actually been there, it's impossible to truly know. You know, I, I, can, I can enter with a big grin and on my face into your experience of winning an Olympic gold medal, but without actually having been there I, I don't know it for sure and so on policing you you can be there at the end of a day or at the end of the night when something unimaginable has happened equally you can be there at the end of the shift when everything has gone right and you've saved someone's life or you've arrested someone dangerous or you've helped an old lady across the road whatever it was but but you get to the end of those days and the end of those nights and I guess to, to hark back to something I was saying earlier on, you, you feel like you are a part of something that matters um, more than anything that you're part of a family. You've got me thinking now of your favourite film, The Shawshank Redemption, where Andy Dufresne's on the top of the roof with the cold beers. Yeah. Um, and, and I had that, that was the exact feeling. I had to talk about it in my book 
after the Olympic final where you come in and you have that that feeling. Is that what you're talking about? Well, I'd say, hey, I'm on for any Shawshank redemption analogy. I'd, I, uh, if you're not careful, I'll end up quoting vast swathes of the script to you. Yeah, it, it's, just, it, it's just that moment when time stands still and usually you're utterly drained of everything that you have. But just in that, there is a moment of stillness where you think, today we did good. Or today, in spite of everything, we did the best we could. Or today, someone got to go home who wouldn't otherwise have been able to. Or, you know, and, and the possibilities are endless. But yeah, just in that moment, you sit as if on the roof of the prison block and there's a moment of stillness in a world that's moving far too fast. You know what? You can talk to me about uh, Shawshank Redemption all day. It's it's one of my favourite. Phil, I remember being on a long haul flight once, and I was and I'd watched it back to back. I'd watched it twice, and on the second one, when Andy Dufresne was crawling through um, on his way out to escape, and there's a, a monologue by um, Red. Yeah, I got my phone and I voice recorded by my my headphones to see if I could record that and then remember it to then learn it, which I haven't managed to do. Yes, because that was, you know, long haul flights, you're knackered, tired, you're trying to get your brain to think about something else. And it took took me into another world. Yeah, yeah. But that's what extraordinary stories do. It's one of the oldest traditions of them all. You know, since the beginning of time, we've sat down and we've told one another stories. And, and stories are important, not just because they divert and amuse, but actually because they educate and inform and and they stir something inside of us that many other things just can't reach i wonder as you move through to borough commander from being a a bobby on the beat at the start i have two questions around that but the first one is around storytelling when did you start first start using stories in your work that's a really good question nobody's asked me that before and i'm not sure whether there was ever a, a sort of a conscious moment where I decided, right, that's what I'm going to do now. You know, the, these days I would describe myself, you know, amongst other things as a storyteller. Uh, I'm in a novice one. You know, I've still got my L plates on. But, but much of what I do now in my writing and my speaking is tell stories. Um, I, I don't think I would have described myself in the same ways, uh, in the same way as, as an operational cop. But, but as I look back, I, I realized that an awful lot of the time I was telling stories, whether it was to my own officers, whether it was to members of the public. You know, so, for example, we put together a, a program for the sergeants on one of the boroughs where I was working, you know, way back when. And we were talking about wanting to raise our game in terms of the quality of service that we delivered to local people. But rather than talking about it in principle, you know, ra rather than just saying, you know, here's, here's a set of ideas we want to pass on to you. What we did instead is we, we went out with the camera crew and talked to some of our local res residents. And we talked to some of our victims of crime in particular. Uh, and we asked them to talk about not just what we'd done well, but also what had gone wrong. Uh, and so rather than me standing at the front with a three point plan, what I wanted to do was allow local residents to tell stories that illustrated the three-point plan so, so let the story do the work rather than something kind of 
dry and dissected that's put into a PowerPoint slide. That's one of the reasons how stories can illuminate the message you're trying to convey. One previous guest we had before was a guy called Andy Milburn. He's a high-ranking, or was a high-ranking US Marine. And we talked about a moment in, as you get promoted, where you no longer know all the names of everybody that works below you. There's this, there's this point. Did you have that as well? And is there any way you, could, you overcame it? Um, no, absolutely, I recognise that. And I'm one of those people who's not always very good at remembering names anyway. I'm very good with faces, um, names I find quite hard, even you know, things like street names and that sort of thing. You know, early in my operational policing career, when I was the operator on the patrol car, so the front seat passenger, your job's to operate the radio and to navigate in, in the days before sat-navs and that sort of thing. Um, I used to have to sit with a blank pad of paper on my lap so that I could write down the number plates of the car in front of me because I'd look at it and as soon as I'd look away, I'd forgotten it. So, so names in and of themselves present a bit of a challenge to me. But um, I, I found as you go up, it, it, it's not just that you know less of the names. It, it, it's also that you know less of the stories, as in you know less of the detail of people's lives. And that can lead to a, you know, a sort of a form of detachment if you're not careful. Because at, at the end of the day, policing is all about people. I'd go as far as saying that policing is people. The rest is just politics and paperwork and noise. And you're quoting a US Marine. I, I, I often quote an unnamed, because I can't find it anymore, um, US general, who, when he was asked about the secret to great leadership, his reply was, drink more coffee, which I love, partly because uh, coffee, the drink, I can't stand. Um, but he was referring to something far beyond that. What, what he was suggesting was that the secret to great leadership was in taking time with your people. So to sit down with them, in his case, with a cup of coffee in his hand. Um, in my case, it would be some cold drink. But, but just to sit down and to spend time in meetings without agendas, just having conversations, just listening to one another, just getting to know one another. So that in policing terms, you're not just a number on a uniform. You're not even just a Velcro name on a badge attached to your bulletproof vest. That, that, that we are all more than just the names that we have and the positions that we hold. We are the sum of all the stories that have made up our lives to that point in time. See, this is music to my ears because I see massive value in this and the unstructured informal. So if you have a grid, you know, your formal, informal, structured, unstructured, those moments uh, resonate hugely. But, and I got asked this question this week with the Boston Consultancy Group that are doing a project around trust and psychological safety. Why is that important? Well, I guess my, my immediate instinct is, is to answer that question from the perspective of a hostage negotiator, um, which is something that I did in addition to my day job for a number of years. And of all the privileges that I had in my professional life, that was one of the greatest of them all. And in a negotiation, and, and bear in mind, you know, the sort of the Hollywood hostage scenario, the dog day afternoon, the bank robbery gone wrong, that sort of thing is actually relatively rare. The full title of the role is hostage and crisis negotiator. And most of the time as a police negotiator, you, you're called out to deal with people in crisis, people who have reached the end of themselves and are in desperate need of a helping hand. 
And in that context, trust is everything. I mean, it's everything. It's quite literally, potentially at least, a matter of life and death. And the core of my role as a negotiator, if it's you that I'm dealing with, is, is to try to build a rapport with you, a relationship of trust with you. But because if I'm able to gain your trust, then it may be that you'll listen when I suggest that you do something other than the thing you had in mind to do. But so in, in, in hostage negotiation, nothing works if trust is absent. But actually, my experience of the rest of life is pretty much the same. So if you, if you were to tell a CEO, what are the benefits of him, to use a, another CEO's term, beyond the dance floor more than the balcony? The benefits are that that trust will actually, if he wants to get fiscal about it, be more profitable for the company because it will create a more open environment. It will create more trust. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think for a lot of these things, there's both a, a commercial argument and an ethical one or a, or a moral one, if you like. You, you know, I, I believe in treating people right. Of course, building trust with them is part of that. I believe in treating people right simply because it's the right thing to do. I don't think you need more of a reason than that. Um, but if you do, absolutely, there's a commercial imperative at the end of it. You know, you look after your people, they look after business, as many people have said before me. You know, I, I think in the absence of trust, it's very difficult to achieve anything of substance in life. Mm. If we go back to the negotiation and the hostage negotiations, that's um, I'm I'm assuming is something that you just you don't just pick up. This is this must be a formal part of your learning for this. Yeah, to uh, to be um, deployed in the role of a negotiator. Um, yeah, you have to. Uh, apply for it, you have to go through an assessment process for it, and then you have to go through a very rigorous training course for it, all of which I loved, or all of which was a privilege. But actually, it's interesting, you, you, you find over time that often some of the best and most natural negotiators in the world are the people who haven't been on the course. It's, it's often the frontline PCs who spend every day of their working lives trying to communicate with people in challenging situations, whether it's someone who's high on drugs, whether it's someone who's semi-conscious on drink, whether it's the victim of a crime or indeed the perpetrator of a crime, whether it's somebody who might be suffering with mental illness. Some of the best negotiators of all are the ones who've simply learned it by doing it. And they're sustained by just a, a, you know, a basic sense of human decency and compassion. One of my best friends, his dad was in the Met and he had 25 years in the Met Police. And I think he, I don't know if he's the only one that holds the record for never having made an arrest. <laughs> uh, and I, 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 don't, I don't know what his first words were to the various people that he was apprehending to avoid going down that track. But, it's, but for you as a hostage negotiator, were there any first words, first sentences that were quite key to opening, opening gambits? It's, well, it's funny you should ask that. And, and actually, there's mention of it in the book that's coming out in June. You know, any negotiators who are listening to this will, will be having a wry smile at the moment because you basically you're taught. And in the end, you end up doing almost every negotiation begins with the same set of words or something very similar to them. Uh, you know, I, I would begin with my name's John. I'm with the police and I'm here to help you. I mean, it's really as simple as that. This is who I am, and this is why I'm here. 
I, I got a very dear friend, Phil Williams, who is part of the inspiration for one of the characters in the book. And Phil, like me, is retired now. Uh, but he was at one stage head of the Scotland Yard hostage unit, um, immensely experienced negotiator. And he would often perform the role of negotiator coordinator. So there'd be a group of us on call standing by to go out, but he would perform the role of team leader. So he would take the first call from the Mets control room. He'd make an assessment about whether or not to deploy us. And, and then he'd decide who should go and what roles we should perform when we get there. Uh, and Phil without fail, when he rang you up to call you out, would always start the conversation in the same way. So your phone would ring at 10 o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the morning or whenever it might be. And you'd pick it up and you'd see that it was his name and number. And so you'd have some idea of what might be coming. But you'd connect the call, say hello. And at the other end, there'd be no hello. There'd be no, how are you? There'd be no small talk or chit chat of any description. The voice at the other end of the phone would simply say, are you ready to save a life? And maybe it was a little bit of an affectation, but, but actually I, I found it profound. And, and it had an extraordinary way of focusing the mind, of getting you ready for what was to come. Uh, and it had a, an extraordinary way of just stripping out all of the other noise and nonsense, all the stuff that really didn't matter. Because here was your opportunity to do the very thing that you joined to do, which was to play your part in saving someone's life. Drives straight into your core. Absolutely. Your purpose. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. Physically, how do you, you feel when that phone call comes and that journey begins towards wherever you've got to go? A mixture of nerves and anticipation and adrenaline all muddled up together. And actually, the combination of those things is is really important nerves so that you're never tempted to complacency but adrenaline to get you through whatever it is that might lie ahead and the potential for some of it at some stage to be pretty traumatic but but it also you, you know the closer you get to you know it may be that you've got a half hour or, or longer car journey before you get there but the closer you get to the negotiation itself I, again, to, to sort of pull on a sporting analogy that I've, I've used before, I, as a negotiator, I, my experiences of it is as I imagine the experience of a 100-meter sprinter to be, where you're down in the blocks and you're surrounded by noise and distraction and possibility and the fear of failure, and it's all going on around you. But in that moment before the gun, the focus of the sprinter narrows just to the lane in front of them and to the tape at the end. And my experience of negotiation is that as you get to the point where it's time to say, my name's John and I'm here to help you, everything else just fades into the background. And then it's just me and you and the job, I pray, of saving your life. At that point, your listening skills on, on every level, what you're seeing and what you're picking up from their body language or voice or tone, that must be crucial, right? Absolutely. And it's listening in a much more profound sense than I've often thought of, of it in the past. And I think often most of us think about it. Uh, I don't know whether you've ever come across the, the Chinese symbol for listening, but the, the written symbol um, conveys a far deeper and more profound understanding of what listening is than the limitations of the English language are able to convey. Uh, and basically, the symbol has four quadrants to it. 
uh, and each quadrant conveys a different aspect of of what listening means. So there's you know there's a bit of the symbol that refers to the ear, but there's also a bit of the symbol that refers to the eye uh, and the importance of not just listening to what people say, but watch how they behave. You know, a huge proportion of all of our communication is nonverbal. Even when you're talking on the phone to someone, there is a proportion of the communication that is nonverbal in, in the sighs and the silences and the sounds that don't quite form words, but still convey all manner of feeling and emotion. So there's a bit that's about the eye. There's a bit that's about the ear. Then there's another bit of the symbol that's about the heart. Partly that, that listening done well is a wholehearted undertaking. Partly an acknowledgement, though, of, of the importance of emotional intelligence, that it's not just a function of the brain, it's a function of the heart and indeed of the soul. That if I'm to listen well to you, I need to give you all of myself. Uh, so often it feels, you know, particularly in sort of social media settings and that sort of thing, so much of listening has just been reduced to the brief silences I allow between the things I want to say. And true listening is couldn't be more different from that. That's some some great tips for for all the all the listeners that are gonna be hearing this episode. Is there anything else along your journey that you would give out as a tool to anyone to improve their listening? Gosh, I mean, there's so much I could say. I'm, you know, I, I'm one of those kids who was raised with my parents saying to me, you've got two ears, one mouth, and they're to be used in those proportions. Talk less, listen more. But understand that there's a difference between listening and hearing, and that there's a further difference between hearing and doing something about what's been said. And to some extent, at least, the effectiveness of our listening is defined by what we do with what we've heard. It's no good to me, it, you know, it's no good me listening to someone who's telling me that they're struggling unless I'm prepared to respond in some way. It, it's no good me listening to someone who's telling me they've got a problem if I'm not prepared to offer some support to them in, in resolving that problem. But, but I used to go and uh, give a lecture on the, the hostage negotiators course about a a particular case that I dealt with, one that didn't turn out well. But one of the key takeaways at the end of it that I would say to people is, you know, in any negotiation, in any conversation, the message was, don't ever lose your humanity. Don't ever lose your capacity to care about the person on the other end of the conversation, even if that person is difficult, even if you struggle to like that person, even if you don't necessarily agree with what they're saying. Never lose your humanity. This is bringing up in my head um, a saying, I, I don't know where it's come from, but when I'm trying to create a, a healthy, psychologically safe environment, part of that process is to create a voice for the voiceless so everybody can feel safe enough to speak up. But often, and perhaps maybe with, with when you're up managing, um, you need to give ears to the earless because they don't want to hear. Now, I'm thinking in a, in a sporting context, sometimes an athlete might not want to try something different or do something extra until either they get dropped or they get injured. You must have had over your time countless conversations with people that you've been talking to to try to get them to stop doing whatever they're doing or behave in the right way. And they're just not they're just not listening to you. And I wonder how can you get them to potentially open up a little bit more so you can have this 
you can have an outcome that's that's the right one for for everybody gosh that's a good question i mean the first thing i would say is not to give up on them however persistently difficult they are don't give up the second thing i would say is is absolutely make sure that you are setting the example for the behavior or the conduct that that you're asking of them and of everyone else you know so much of leadership is undermined by the laziness and neglect of do as I say, not as I do. You know, I need to make sure that I'm absolutely consistent in demonstrating what it is that I'm demanding of other people. And then the third thing I would say, you know, alongside not giving up on the person, it is, it is to repeatedly demonstrate that you are for the person that you're making these demands of. I sometimes say to my former policing colleagues when I'm invited back in to talk about leadership, that you need to love people in order to be able to lead them well. You need to love people in order to be able to lead them well. I, I then explain, not least to reassure them, that, that loving people is not necessarily the same as liking them. I don't have to like you in order to be an effective leader for you. But at some very basic sense, I do need to love you, which is that I, you know, it's back to my point about not losing, not forfeiting your humanity. You know, my starting point as a leader must be that I want the very best for you, even before I'm seeking to get the very best from you. Loving you means that I want what's best for you. And if between us, we can work out what's best for you, one of the end products of that might well be that I end up getting the best from you. Um, but there are always reasons to explain people's behavior. You know, if somebody's being particularly difficult or particularly stubborn or particularly whatever, you know, the temptation is to want to stamp the foot and crack the whip and issue threats. And, you know, sometimes leadership demands that we are firm, that we have our lines in the sand, that we're not prepared to cross. But before we get to those, you know, have we, have I properly stopped and asked myself, hang on, why is Ben behaving the way that he is? Is there something going on here that I'm not aware of? Never mind at work. Is there something going on in life that I'm not aware of? And maybe if I take the time to work out, establish what that is, then we might find this thing a whole lot easier to fix. And I think one of the greatest challenges we face at this point in the 21st century is, is the scarcity of time. Uh, back to the American general and drinking coffee. You know, we're, we're all just in this one mad rush we're, we're all so impatient and we're all in such a hurry and we want our food faster and we want our broadband faster and we want our uber to turn up faster you know minutes after we've tapped the button on our phone and faster and faster and faster we go and and actually sometimes the thing we need to do more than anything else is slow down and stop and take a moment and say hang on actually what's going on here because those five minutes we take now might save us five years further down the line. Truly fascinating from John Sutherland and plenty more to come next week as we bring you part two of this conversation. Now, what comes through in this first part is how much he cares and how well he listens. It shines through when you meet him and speak to him. He also talked so well about how caring about someone is almost a non-negotiable as a leader or as a colleague. Wanting those around us to be at their best and letting them know that you genuinely care about them. Well, it's a bedrock to building relationships. 
The advice to drink more coffee may be simple, but it's also brilliant, perhaps more so than ever these days. Next week, we continue to delve into communication and leadership, jump into the front line as John describes a moment in time when he was in charge of an operation that shut down a major part of London. We discuss the moment he first realised he was having a nervous breakdown and the lessons he learnt from that. And we also go deep on topics such as humility and hope, as well as getting his answers to a series of quickfire questions from best book to favourite film. And if you were listening a little earlier, well, we might have already given that one away. Anything John and I mentioned will be available in the show descriptions on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. And for previous episodes and transcripts, please check out my website, benryan.co.uk. If you haven't subscribed to the pod, which costs you a few seconds of your time, but nothing else, then I'd love you to do that. And if you want to reach out to me, head to the website or find me on Twitter and Instagram. This has been Culture and Performance with Ben Ryan. Thanks for listening.